0: can you relate? Can you relate? We are talking and beginning a series on relationships, on relationships. Not just romantic relationships, but all relationships. And relationships and how we treat one another, how we treat one another, there is, there is nothing more indicative of our maturity as people, whether we are someone who follows after Christ or someone who doesn't yet know him, there is nothing more indicative of our maturity is how we are able to love one another. And so that's what we're talking about as we begin, especially as we talk as entering in here at Lincoln Elementary, how we unleash that love and how we treat our neighbors, how we treat those around us, how we endure through the difficulties of life. And so the idea of endurance is, as many of you know, I run Spartan races. In fact, I ran one yesterday. It's probably a, a very uh, overly flattering picture on the screen right now. Uh, but we, they're endurance, they're obstacle races, they're endurance races. They test our fitness, they test our endurance. Uh, the one yesterday was over in Chino, local one. We ran six and a half miles and interspersed over that six and a half miles are 28 obstacles. Monkey bars you have to climb across, moving monkey bars, rings you have to to slide across, climb over things, hop over eight-foot walls, stuff like that. Sounds like a lot of fun, doesn't it? But I I really enjoy it. My family has come to enjoy it. My boys love doing it. They get muddy. They have a great time. But endurance, endurance when it comes to sports is, is fairly straightforward. You just continue to put one foot in front of the other. You continue to shoot the ball. You continue to tackle. You continue to pass and, and stick with it with your teammates. It's fairly straightforward. But what's not as straightforward is how we endure, again, with the idea of obstacles in mind, how do we endure through the obstacles of life? How do, where do we find the internal source of fuel to endure through the difficulties of life. And I hear all the time the idea of of endurance. As a pastor, I hear all the time people come up to me, hey, yeah, you know, I, I grew up in the church, I grew up religious, I grew up going to church with my family, but life got too busy, I don't go anymore, or I had a lot of questions, I had a lot, lot of doubts that really never got answered, and so I kind of walked away from faith, or I just, got, I just got too busy, there's too much going on, but I, I, started, I started over here, but I hear stories of so many people that do not endure. That did not endure. And so today we want to look at what it means to endure and how we endure. And as I said earlier and why we're in this series of Can You Relate? There's no better representer of how we endure than how we treat one another. And how, how we receive the love of God and then give that to other people. How we create and foster healthy relationships. Because that is where our lives, any obstacles for that matter, and I don't want to paint relationships as obstacles, but think of all of the issues you've had in, in the recent past. How many of them had to do or were because of other people? Were in the context of relationships with other people? That is, that is where life is lived out, is in relationship to one another. And so enduring and overcoming obstacles in life and fostering healthy relationships is of the utmost importance and is no better indicator of our maturity than how we treat one another. And so if you have your Bibles uh, or don't have them, we have some in the back for you. You can simply raise your hand and some of our ushers, ushers will bring you Bibles today. But we're going to be looking at what the Bible says about enduring and how we endure through the obstacles in life, how we endure through the obstacles that we face in our relationships. And so you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to start in verse 1 and go through verse 4 today. And we're, gonna, we're beginning with Paul who once again is writing to the Corinthian church. Is a church that he planted, that he came to Corinth and witnessed and shared the good news of Jesus with all these people, and they came to faith. But as he left, he went on to plant more churches. They kind of came under attack. There were false prophets. There were other essentially power mongers who wanted to take control and have influence over these people and over this church and say they were trying to discredit Paul and they were trying to discredit the gospel of Jesus Christ that he was preaching for their own personal gain. And so Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the chapter right before this, is talking about how we come together as a unified body under Jesus, the head of the church, under Jesus to then use our spiritual gifts, use the gifts, that he's given us to foster unity, to unleash love, compassion, exactly what we're talking about today, how we use our gifts, our resources to unify and bless others with the love of Jesus. And so that's, that's where we pick up in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. Paul says this, eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet... I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in tongues of men or of angels, but I do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. Let me read that one again. If I have the gift of prophecy, can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have the gift of faith and can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. For love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. So Paul is talking about these gifts, these resources that we have. But he says, no, 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 look, Corinthians, I will show you the most excellent way. What is the most excellent way? It is grounded in love. And love is not a gift. Love is simply the chief, the top Christian virtue that everything we do, living out, giving of our time, talents, treasures of our resources is meant to be done in love. And that is available Or we have the capacity as Christians uh, to do that as much as anyone else. These aren't gifts because gifts are given to people. Some have them. Some don't is kind of the idea from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. But love, each and every one of us has the capacity to love others and to operate our gifts and to unleash compassion, unleash our service, our abilities with love towards other people. And as we as we look at that passage though it's really striking the things that he mentions that can be done but in when they're done not lovingly they profit us nothing they do not yield eternal lasting fruit in people's lives. If I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but have not love, I'm a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. If I have faith that can move a mountain, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. We revere leaders, great orators. We revere the leaders that have incredible wisdom and insight and can maybe even help us understand the mysteries of, of faith, of life, of relationships for that matter. We revere those people like, you know, your Mother Teresa's or your Gandhi's that give freely of themselves, that, that, that more or less give up every convenience that this life has to offer to serve other people, giving over their bodies to, to endure pain, to endure physical suffering for the benefit of others until others might receive justice, or incredible faith that can move mountains. All of these things, all of these things without love profit us nothing, profit them nothing. And so how, how do we define that? How, how do we define this, this love of God, and I think the simplest way of putting it is this, is that all of these things, all of these gifts, which gifts, mind you, are not earned, they are simply given. All of these gift, gifts, if used for self, if used to be self-serving, that is what it means to do them without love. But in God's economy, the chief Christian virtue, being love, to do so lovingly as God does is to give in a is to, well, is self-giving. That to use what we have, all the resources we have, in a self-giving way, with considering the other as greater than ourselves, that is what it means to love as Jesus loved. Not in a self-serving way, but that we can use these things for our benefit. Or even on the outside, we look incredibly humble, we look incredibly giving, but on the inside, we're looking for the edification, we're looking for the praise of man, to do these things genuinely out of a heart that cares for other people as much or more so than ourselves. To be self-giving as opposed to self-serving is what it means to love as God loves us. And those who do not, those who do not are the clanging symbolists. This gets a little bit annoying. Visuals, am I right? That is what the gifts and, and abilities that we have sound like to other people, if not done in love. That we can stand up, and many people might follow us, but unless we are doing and loving them and giving of ourselves, again, it profits us nothing, it profits them nothing in the long term, and frankly, a lot of those people can be very unpleasant, just like our clanging cymbal or our resounding gong and the reality is and we see this all over our world today that people are motivated to serve they're motivated to use their gifts and it's actually a self-serving way in which they do it Uh, a story of this a very sad story about this is of Ray Najin Ray was the mayor of New Orleans Back in 2005, you guys remember Hurricane Katrina, swept through New Orleans and, and a lot of Louisiana, leaving many people desolate and homeless. Many, in fact, I, I went with, with others on a, on, a, on a mission trip there to help out and to restore some of what they were doing while, while I was in college, as, as did my wife. And during that time, Ray was the mayor of new orleans ray should have been unleashing compassion and using all the gifts that were coming into new orleans to bless people but what happened is he became he was the face of a battered city after hurricane katrina and a few years ago the 10th anniversary 2015 came and went of hurricane katrina but there was no ray nageen where was ray Ray was nowhere to be found because the former mayor was serving a 10-year federal prison sentence for corruption. Because before, during, and after Hurricane Katrina, uh, when his city needed help the most, Najin used the disaster as a revenue source. He installed one of his own guys as the, the city's chief technology officer, gaining control over millions of dollars that were, being, that were coming into the city at that time. And he was gaining control over no-bid contracts in the city, all these new building projects uh, for things like computer system, crime cameras, new buildings. Uh, and Najin used his position as mayor to steer the, these redevelopment projects and businesses to a granite company that he owned with his sons for his personal gain. And perhaps worst of all, he let his city down during its darkest hour. And there are so many people who have the opportunity to to do good, or on the outside, they look incredibly selfless, they look like they're helping so many, but on the inside, we can be rotten, like Ray was. When, When we are motivated by self, that is what happens. And this is, you, you guys see this in the world around us today, just like that story about back in 2005. We see this today that in the name of justice for other people, in the name of loving other people, we degrade those who disagree with us. We see it all around us that that in trying to seek justice for others, that these people need their rights, these people need this, we tear down, we show immense violence and hostility towards those who who might disagree with us. We see our fellow human beings who we're supposedly fighting for the rights of and we see them as our enemies, our opposition. We see that all around us. We degrade those, we degrade other people as we're trying to lift up another. And we have to realize that when we do things in love, when we, if we're to, to operate in the love that Jesus is, is asking us to, is guiding us to, is empowering us to, it's to see all of us in the same needy boat that we need Jesus because that is the love that Christ modeled for us. And so, what's missing? What do we need? What does what the heart of Jesus look like towards other people? What does it mean to be self-giving as opposed to self-serving? What an incredible story I read the other day about this young fellow named Chad. I'm going to share it with you. This, this, Chad is just any other guy. This is just a, a, an anecdotal story. Little Chad was a shy, quiet young fella. One day he came home and told his mother he'd like to make a valentine for everyone in his class. Her heart sank. She thought, "I wish he wouldn't do that." Because she had watched the children when they walk home from school. Her Chad was always behind them. They laughed and hung on to each other and talked to each other. But Chad was never included. Nevertheless, she decided she would go along with her son, so she purchased the paper and glue and crayons, and for three whole weeks, night after night, Chad painstakingly made 35 valentines. Valentine's Day dawned, and Chad was beside himself with excitement. He carefully stacked them up, putting them in a bag, and bolted out the door. His mom decided to bake him his favorite cookies and serve them up with uh, warm with a nice cool glass of milk when he came home from school. She just knew he'd be disappointed maybe that would ease his pain a little and it hurt her to think that he wouldn't get many valentines or maybe not at all in return that afternoon she had the cookies and milk out on the table when she heard the children outside she looked out the window sure enough here they came laughing and having the best time and as always there was chad in the rear he walked a little faster than usual she fully expected him to burst into tears as soon as he got inside His arms were empty, she noticed, and when the door opened, she choked back to her own tears. Mommy has some warm cookies for you and some milk, but he hardly heard her words. He just marched right on in, his face aglow, and all he could say was, not a one, not a one. Her heart sank, but then he added, I didn't forget one, not a single one. Simple story of Chad, but that 's the heart of Jesus to give without expectation of what we will receive in return that Chad was not concerned he was not giving those valentines with his own agenda in mind that I, I want to receive something in return, I want to grow these friendships I want to be popular or whatever the case may be. He was giving purely and simply to love others. That he he was excited. Why was he excited? Because he didn't forget one, not even one. Every kid in his class, regardless of how they had treated him, knew they were loved that Valentine's Day. And this is what it means to be self-giving in our love, to be like Jesus, to be like God in our love. That without any consideration of what we receive in return or expectation of what we receive in return that we can give to love others. And that Paul would begin his passage defining love with patience. Love is patient, love is kind. It is not self-seeking, it does not boast, it is not proud, is very telling for us. The definition of patience, according to Google, no less, is this, The capacity to accept or tolerate delay, trouble, or suffering without getting angry or uh, upset, it endures provocation. We would have accepted just waiting, (laughs) waiting for, for patience. But even Google, that's how they define patience. So God doesn't give up on us when we turn and go our own way. God doesn't give up on those who turn against him. We aren't to give up on those who turn their back on us. We aren't to give up on those who maybe don't treat us like we're trying to treat them or we ought to be treated. Because this is the main point of today. Is that enduring with God cannot fail. The only way we fail is when we fail to endure. We have a God We have an almighty God of love whose love never fails. And the only way we fail is when we give up, when we fail to show that love and to endure patiently and lovingly in relationship with those around us. It's just, patience is just not giving up. And so what does it look like? What are a couple deeper characteristics of how we foster this idea of this self-giving love that God modeled for us in, in, in the scriptures? The first is that love is a choice. Being patient with others is a choice. That so often today love is considered simply a feeling that is uncontrollable. But as much as love is a feeling, it is a choice. When I was dating my now wife, Jessica, I was deciding whether I was going to marry her or not. And I knew I loved her. I could have articulated to anyone, absolutely, I love her. And honestly, she's, she'd be a great choice. She'd be a great choice for a wife. She's going to be a great, she'd be a great wife, she'd be a great mom, and she would be a great ministry partner as I sense that's where God is leading me. She'd be a great partner in ministry. And you know what? I even want to marry her. But I sent her a Dear John letter one weekend, sending her home with her parents and staying back that we might not make it because what I was looking for was purely a feeling. The, the idea, essentially that Hollywood ideal of the one or you just know. And I was ready to walk away from an incredible woman who's now my wife because I didn't have that feeling. But thanks to some people, some wise, God-fearing people in my life that spoke into me and pointed me back towards scripture and, sh- and asked me, Dave, where do you see that in the Bible? This idea of, of, of the one that you just have that, that intangible feeling. Where, where do you see that? Oh, well I, I see that in the movie Serendipity, but I don't see it in the Bible. Because love, especially in the Bible, is as much a choice as it is any feeling. Jesus came to love us not because we earned it or deserved it. Or because it was easy for him. He chose to love us and he gives us the opportunity to choose to love other people. But like begets like, which is the beautiful thing, is that as we choose to love others, we will actually find that that yields fruit in us of patience and love and that we actually come to like them more. It's the idea that an apple tree does not yield oranges, an orange tree does not yield apples, nor can a bad tree yield good fruit. That as if, if we begin to cultivate those good things and choose to cultivate those good things in our lives, it will yield more good fruit. And so we choose it. Love is a choice. Love is a choice. As we've been talking about, love is also self-giving. Love seeks the, the good of others above seeking the good of self. Patience, patiently loving others in Scripture, as we read, this is so that the New Testament is written in Greek, and so the Greek translation of patience, most accurately translated, means long-suffering with others. That when it's inconvenient, when it's difficult, we choose to lean in and maybe suffer right alongside with them when it gets difficult, when it gets difficult. Another story of of someone that I was exposed to by one of my uh, favorite movies when I was growing up was The Rock with Sean Connery. He was wrongfully imprisoned, and he mentioned he felt a little bit like Alchemytis or Solzhenitsyn. And when he said that, I had no idea who Alchemytis or Solzhenitsyn were, and so it actually prompted me to look them up. And Solzhenitsyn, Alexander Solzhenitsyn is a very interesting story. He was born in 1918 in Russia, and he became part of, his father was a military man, and he became part of the military. He joined the Red Army and served during, during World War II. But while he was serving... He was accused of anti-Soviet propaganda. He, he was one of those who really thought for himself and of founding a hostile organization towards Stalin and the Soviet Republic. And so he was taken in 1945 just as the war, just as Germany was, was being defeated and just as the war was ending, Alexander, who was on the winning side, mind you, was being thrown in to prison in Lubyanka prison in Moscow on July 7th, 1945. He was sentenced in his absence, mind you, by special counsel to an eight-year term in a labor camp. Most of those labor camps were in Siberia, a very cold, drab, and hopeless part of their country. In March 1953, he was released, and then he was sent into internal exile. That He was, not, he was released from prison in the labor camp, but he wasn't allowed to go back to his old life. While he was in exile, he began writing prodigiously. And a few years later, under Khrushchev, uh, who was much more open to to ideals outside of of the Soviet Soviet bubble, he was was, uh, exonerated and freed from his exile. In his Nobel Prize acceptance speech, Solzhenitsyn wrote, "'During all the years until 61, not only was I convinced I should never see a single line of mine in print in my lifetime, but also I scarcely dared to allow any of my close acquaintances to read anything I had written.'" Uh, He wrote a book called The Gulag Archipelago, which was composed from 1958 to 1967. Its unrelenting indictment of communist ideology made it one of the most influential books of the 20th century. It has sold over 30 million copies in over 35 languages. However... In 1974, after he'd finished writing this, the government once again became very repressive towards, you know, anti-Soviet speech, and so Alexander's Russian citizenship was revoked and in 1974, he was sent to West Germany, and he eventually ended up in America. And he continued to write. He was one of the most influential writers, speakers of the 20th century. But he never lost his passion for writing. He never lost his passion for his home country in Russia. And he never lost his passion. He was a Russian Orthodox Christian. He never lost his his passion for Jesus, for Christian for Christianity, which he found while he was in prison. Because as as a Soviet, you're not they're by definition atheists. Uh, that he, while well, he served in the army, he walked away from God, but while he was in prison no less, he found God in mighty ways. He looked back, and he was, he's quoted as saying, I look back on my life and I see God's perfect orchestration. That the, the people that I met while in prison, the people that I met while in exile, he, he never stopped loving Russia. He was imprisoned by them for 10 years, exiled from them for 20. He saw that as God's long-suffering, mind you, God's gracious gift of life to him that enabled him to become who God wanted him to be. That's, that's patience, is someone who can endure that. And regarding his trials, this is, this is a quote uh, towards the end of his life. Regarding the trials in the Soviet regime in Russia, as well as what plagued humanity worldwide at the time, Solzhenitsyn declared this. Over half a century ago, while I was still a child, I recalled hearing a number of old people offering the following explanation for the great disasters that had befallen Russia. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Since then, I've spent well nigh 50 years working on the history of our revolution. In the process, I've read hundreds of books, collected hundreds of personal testimonies, and have already contributed eight volumes of my own towards the effort of clearing away the rubble left by that upheaval. But if I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million of our people, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat, men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Patience. Patience requires humility, and humility trusts God to justify us, to defend us, and to save us. This is, this is the story of Jesus, is it not? That Jesus came, God himself, the only, the perfect spotless lamb, came to earth, God himself, and suffered before sinful man. Matthew 26 says, says this, when Jesus is being accused before the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, well, aren't you gonna answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself? But Jesus remained silent. Then the high priest said to him, I demand in the name of the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus replied, you have said it. And in the future you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes to show his horror and said, blasphemy, why do we need another witness? You have already heard this blasphemy. What is your verdict? Guilty, they shouted, he deserves to die. Jesus, the creator of the universe and our Savior, did not feel the need to defend himself. Do we? When we talk about godly, loving patience, do we feel the need to defend ourselves, to justify ourselves, to seek our own? Show me a defensive person who has to always defend themselves and is quick to justify their behavior, and I will show you someone who's not secure in who they are as a loved son or daughter of God. My sons are learning this very, very slowly, though. Well, I punched him because he punched me. It it justifies my actions towards him. I was just doing what was done to me. And there are many adults, sadly, that, that remain in these cycles of, well, I'm, I, I have to justify myself, I have to defend myself before others. Show me someone that is insecure and feels the need to defend themselves, and I will show you someone who is not resting in the love, the patient love of God. Now, just to be clear, patience does not mean we justify or tolerate evil. There's a quote from Craig Blomberg that explains this well. Love does not disguise or unleash anger. It does not remove irritants from our lives or reduce irritability by forbidding anger. Rather, it meets our deepest needs. Enabling us to respond differently to enraging circumstances reduces the potential for frustration, gives the power to communicate anger appropriately, and increases our gratitude for the way God has worked in our lives. And so, with Jesus as our example, what is our source for loving others patiently in this way? How do we, almost counterintuitively to our self-focused humanity, where do we find the well? Where do we find the reserves in our hearts to love other people, to suffer long with other people? And I believe that's only when we, as I said earlier, when we can receive and rest secure as be- and re- receive the love of God and rest secure as his beloved sons and daughters as the foremost factor, as the foremost uh, identifier of our lives, that that is the foundation of who we are. King David exemplifies this. King David was a king of Israel. He wrote Psalm 63. He was the greatest king that Israel ever had, but at this point in his life, he was running in the desert from his son who was trying to usurp his throne and kill him. His name was Absalom. And this is what David writes in Psalm 63. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods, with singing lips. My my mouth will praise you. Close your eyes with me just for a minute and, and visualize this. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. Imagine if our lives are this desert and the only life-giving thing, the only thing that can truly sustain us through this life is the, the refreshing water of Jesus, the refreshing love, representing the refreshing love of Jesus coming to satiate, coming to refresh our hearts. That is how much we need the love of God how we treat, how we love others, how we show patience towards others, you can open your eyes now, by the way, can find no other source in this life than the love of Jesus. Than the love of Jesus. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus gives us the second greatest commandment. It's to love our neighbors as ourselves. I mean, that's... How we treat one another is a great indicator of our maturity and how we know God and how we know his love. But the interesting thing about that passage is that obviously that's the second greatest commandment. The first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. But then he says, and the second is like it. Loving others is like loving God because as I just said, we cannot love others unless the fuel for that is God's love in our own hearts. That until it takes root, until it fully consumes us and we are filled to the measure of the fullness of God as I pray over us every week with his immense love, that is the fuel. And by understanding that more and more, by by sitting with God in relationship daily, That is the fuel source for how we love and suffer with and show patience towards those around us. And so I'm going to invite the band back up right now. And I want you to consider this as we think about enduring through the difficulties of life and how we treat other people. And how we show that loving, God's loving patience towards other people. Patience allows the justifier to justify you. Patience allows the healer to heal you. Patience allows the defender to to defend you. And patience allows the savior to save you. Patience, under God's love, frees our hearts and allows us to think about how we can seek justice, how we can seek salvation, and how we can seek to defend those who cannot defend themselves, how we can seek those things for other people, not simply for ourselves. We can trust God patiently trust God to justify us and seek that justice for other people. That is, that is where I want to end today. That is my challenge for us today is who are those people? We, we know who our neighbors are right now here at Lincoln Elementary. We are, we are blessed to be right here in the community and how we can unleash God's love and show this long-suffering patience uh, to our neighbors. When it's inconvenient for us, when it costs us something, what do we have to offer or it really If we offer our time to begin to build relationships, and it will take some time to build relationships, to love, to even figure out, to discern what the exact needs are. But we have the opportunity to love our neighbors. We have the opportunity to love those in our own lives. Some of you have some very difficult coworkers. Some of you have very difficult family members. How can we unleash the love of God, the patient, long-suffering love of God? on their lives, in their lives, and show something compelling, show something better, that there is hope, that the great needs in this community and the great needs of those in our lives that are living in darkness, maybe without hope, that we are offering them the light. We are offering them a love that is better than life, as King David said. We get to be, as we talked about last week, those ambassadors of making relationships right, of his patient love. And so my question to you is, as I close in prayer in this moment, who are those people? We have our neighbors, but who are you going to see tomorrow? Who are you going to see maybe later tonight at a family dinner? I don't know. But who are those people in your life that need to see in you the patient love of Jesus And to know that they are valued, they are loved, they are cared for by you. And in knowing that they are loved and cared for by you, they see and they experience this life-altering love of Jesus. Bow your heads in prayer with me. Father in heaven, I pray today that you would be our justifier, that you would be our defender, and that we would allow you, truly allow you to be our savior, to to save us, to not try and justify ourselves before other human beings, to not try and justify ourselves in our own hearts, but to patiently sit before you and allow you, our God, to love us and to love us to such a point that we are no longer concerned about receiving and getting what we need, but that we trust you for our provision, we trust you for our justification, and that we then can go and show that love and shower shower that compassion, that patient love on the world around us. Come meet us here in these moments, Father. Rend our hearts once again to open to you and your patient love for us. Amen.